On June 8, 1956, five men stepped off an airplane to make first contact with the Aka Indians. And I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story. One of the men was Nate Saint, an MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship pilot. And one of them was Jim Elliott, who was a committed student of God's Word and, and applying it to his daily life. And they, along with three other men, stepped off that plane to make first contact and share the gospel with those Indians. And we know the story, and, 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 and some of you do, that f- the five of them were soon speared to death by those Indians. And what they thought was a week of leading up to first contact and a beautiful day ended up being a devastating day for their families. And at that point, there were choices to be made. Do we give up? Do we lose hope? Has God failed us? And what's interesting to me is, is how the story goes on. And even though it, it seems tragic, the responses of their wives and relatives were amazing. And the way that God used that was amazing. The wives of these men and Nate's sister, they opened up their hearts to these Indians. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot and Nate's sister Rachel ended up going to live among the Indians that killed their husband and brother. That, for me, I, I, I don't know whether I could do that. That's a bridge too far. But they sensed God's leading. And they sensed that God wanted to use this impossible situation for His glory. And they went, and virtually the whole tribe was one for Christ. What an amazing story of God using an impossible situation, a tragic situation, unsurmountable odds, at least to us, and using it for His glory. Before that event, Jim Elliott had written in his diary, God, I pray Thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for Thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is Thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like You, Lord Jesus. And if you've heard that story, undoubtedly you've been inspired to walk with God and to, to step out in faith for God. And today we're going to look at two more stories where people are faced with insurmountable odds or, or seemingly impossible situations, and we see their responses. And I, and I know we face all kinds of things, and maybe, maybe we don't face something to this scope, but some of you have faced situations this week that you're like, I don't even know how God can work in this situation. I don't understand it. I, I don't see the benefit of this. God, what are you doing? And sometimes we ask those questions. Sometimes I ask those questions. Sometimes we're waiting for God to act, and it seems like he's been silent on things we've been praying for, whether it be someone that we've been praying to come to Christ or whether it's been uh, praying for something in our lives. And that can be all the way from physical needs like jobs and, and illness to spiritual needs like praying for a family member's salvation or maybe a difficult situation that we're praying for change and God to work in. And, and so we are faced with these impossible situations and wondering how is God working. And today I want to come to Luke and we, as we start Luke and really dive into Luke, I want to come and learn from the characters of the story. Learn from, from how God worked and how God interacted and intervened in their lives and, and how God is working in the grand scope of history. And that will help us as we look at the situations in our own lives. When we come to narrative and, and we're going to be spending a, a bunch of time in Luke and, and we want to read it, like I said last week, as more than just a story, more than just history. How do we apply this to our lives Some of the ways we do that is by asking questions. And I have three questions we can ask that I want you to think of every week. And it doesn't mean every one of these will apply every week. But the first is, what do we learn about God and His plan of salvation? What do we learn about God and His plan of salvation? See, Luke is is God's story of salvation. It's His story of how He is intervening in human history and loving us and rescuing us from the depths of sin. And so we want to embrace that, and we want to learn about that. We want to get excited about that. We're going to learn about God's character. We're going to learn about His sovereignty and some of the things we talked about last week. One of the ways we'll do that is by connecting stories together, seeing the bigger picture. And so, yeah, you can take each of these stories all by themselves, 
But really, when we see the bigger pattern, we see what God is doing. Second question we want to ask is, what can we learn from the characters of the story and their interactions with God, the interactions between God and them? What did God like? What did God not like? What was he displeased with? So that's a question. What can we learn about character? And those are the two questions we're going to ask today. The third one, when we get deeper into the life of Christ, is what can we learn about following Jesus? How does Christ want to disciple me through this story? It's not just the 12, but me. So those are questions that are just helpful to ask as we go through this. And today we want to jump in and and we want to ask really those first two questions. What is God doing? Can anything stop God's plan? How is God working his plan? That's the first question we want to ask. And the second question is, what kind of response is he looking for? What kind of response is he looking for? And what we'll do is we'll talk through the stories, and then at the end we'll answer those two questions. But I wanted to give them to you up front so you could be thinking about those as we study the story. Now picture the setting that we talked about last week. Luke wasn't part of these events, but he's been traveling with Paul. And he's been seeing lives changed by, through Paul's ministry and, and people coming to Christ and the church being founded and God working in incredible ways. And so he's decided, I'm going to research this. I'm going to write a full account of how this started. And I'm going to go back to the beginning and, and to interview people and study sources. I'm going to give an, a, a full account of what happened. And so I picture him going to interview Mary and say, Mary, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened at the beginning. And, and she doesn't start when Jesus is born. She actually starts before that. And so Luke, in, in his gospel, starts before that to the announcements of John the Baptist, to the announcements of the birth of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at both of those birth announcements. Luke has masterfully put them together, to, to designed to be read as one. And so in your notes, you see two columns. Because these stories are, are parallel to each other. They follow the same path. And, and whenever you have two stories that are so identical, you not only want to look at the points of where they're identical, but you want to look at the points where they're different. Because that's probably what God is trying to, to stress and point out in these stories. And so we'll do that, work our way through the text, and, and then look at some of those differences. But Luke chapter 1, we'll start at verse 5. And we'll go through the announcement of John the Baptist, the announcement of Jesus and their births. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the the chairs right around you. You're welcome to take that. Keep that as our gift to you, and we want you to have God's Word. So we start with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist in 5 through 25, and and you see five different boxes in your chart, and these are the the five different movements that we're going to use to work through the story, both stories, because they're pretty much identical in how they flow. And the first is the setting, and and Luke does a great job of setting up the setting in verses 5 through 7. And and he's setting up that Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, they're they're godly people. They're walking with God, but they haven't had kids. And so they, they, they couldn't have kids now because of their age. They've dealt with infertility, and now it's too late. The, the, the chance is gone. And so the setting in verse 5 is in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And right from the start, we have Herod, and this is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great lived right up until just after Jesus was born. And, and he was a builder of things, and an, uh, just, uh, he, was, he was so into himself that he built palaces, but he's the guy that rebuilt the temple into the glory, Herod's temple, into what we see in the life of Jesus. And that had probably just been finished, and, and Herod also was a bit of a monster. You know, this is the man that killed all of the the boys under two in Bethlehem because he was afraid that a ruler would come and supplant him. He killed his brothers-in-law. He killed his beloved wife as well as his mother because he thought there was a threat to his throne. So that's the kind of man that this is set in and the darkness that this is set in. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So right from the start, you get some information in just two quick verses about Zechariah and Elizabeth, don't you? 
you see that he was a priest. And as a priest, and that's setting up the scene, as a priest, they were divided up into sections and groups, and each group would serve twice a year for a week in the temple. So there were a lot of priests, and they would come and serve in the temple, and there were a lot of duties that they would do. And so it's setting up that he was one of these, and, and his time was coming up to serve in the temple. Now, we know Elizabeth also was a, a descendant of Aaron, and that's pretty rare. Sometimes a priest didn't marry a descendant of Aaron, but this is a special blessing. But what's key is verse 6, how they were described. They were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this didn't mean they were perfect, but it gave a pattern. It said they were constantly obeying God. They were continually right before God. And if they blew it, they made sure they made it right. They did the sacrifices. And so these were were godly people, which is why verse 7 is so surprising. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. See, in that time, as opposed to today, but in that time, it was considered a reproach. It was considered shameful if a wife couldn't have kids, right? And, and so Elizabeth is in the setting, I've walked with God, I've done everything I can to, to be right with God, and I have no kids, so I'm looked down on in culture. In fact, many thought it was a sign of disobedience and punishment by God. And so imagine their feeling that we are doing our best to walk with God, but we have this punishment by God, which we're going to find out really wasn't punishment. And it was an issue of perspective, not of punishment and not of not walking with God. And so they're struggling with infertility. And I I see this sort of as a really God moment. Really? We serve you and this is what happens? I've told the story before. I remember one of our trips down to Rancho Santa Marta and we took our whole family down to a missions trip and had a great weekend of serving and we come home and find our our doors kicked in and our house broken into and stuff gone. And that was a really God moment. Like, really God? We were serving you. And, And this is what you let happen? And you see the self in that response, don't you? It, it, it's natural. Yeah, I can understand it. But, but it's, it's questioning God and whether God could have stopped this or should have stopped this and questioning His plan. And that's what I picture Zechariah and Elizabeth struggling with. Now, infertility would have brought up all kinds of thoughts. You think of Sarah and Abram. And, and Sarah was infertile and, and old. And, and many of, much of the story also follows that story. And Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah with Samuel. And we see throughout the Old Testament, and, and as students of the Old Testament, they, they should have remembered these, but throughout the Old Testament, God has used impossible situations for His plan. God has used these situations to make the timing just right, to make sure He gets the glory. And so we see sometimes difficult times happen. Sometimes they happen to godly people. In fact, we know in Scripture, if we're following God, difficult times will happen. But God will use that for His purpose. So that's the setting. And, and, and the setting is also one of hopelessness. That you, you don't hope for a child anymore. It's too late. The bodies have moved on. But the beauty of it is God's plan isn't limited by human limitations. And so that's the setting. And in the next section, the messenger, God sends an angel to announce his work. And starting in verse 8, we see what happens. And now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, so the setting is, it's one of his two weeks out of the year. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And this is significant, and, and, and we may not understand this, but There were lots of duties the priests got to do, but the ultimate thing they got to do was to go into the temple to the holy place, not to the holy of holies, that was once a year, but someone twice a day, one of the priests would go into the holy place, which is between where the presence of God dwelt and the people, and act as an intermediary. And they would take the coals from the sacrifice outside and incense, and they would offer them to God in the temple. And this is something that was, was so rare that Zechariah had never done it before because you only got to do this once in your life. And once your number came up, 
then you never were eligible again. And so he's an old man. He's been waiting his whole life for this honor, for this privilege, the, the pinnacle of priesthood. And today's the day. And they cast the lot, which, which for them was showing God's sovereignty that God chose today for Zechariah to go into that place and offer incense. And what would happen is some assistance to the priests or, or maybe another priest would, would walk in with him carrying the coals and the incense and they would place it down and then they would exit and leave Zechariah alone there to pray, to prostrate himself before God, to pray and to offer this incense to God. That's the picture. And so then we, we go to verse 10 and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so there's people outside the temple, and they're praying. Incense was an act of prayer. It, it represented as the aroma went up that our prayers were going up to God. So it was all very visual and, and, and sensory. And this was a time that you prayed and were presenting petitions to God. And as we read on in verse 11, everything changes. And God intervenes. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense between the candlestick and the altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. You think? He's alone. And he's next to the presence of God. And if you violate that, you're risking your life. And he's there working. And suddenly someone's talking to him from in there. And they didn't come in from behind him. Get the picture, and and Luke is painting this because there is an element of amazement here. And so we see the messenger comes and an angel comes to announce the work. After all these years, Zechariah is finally chosen. And after all these years that Israel is waiting, salvation is finally coming. And there's so many parallels that God is using the life of Zechariah to show what he's doing in Israel. They had been waiting 400 years. It had been 400 years since Malachi and the words of the last prophet. And and the, the, the children of Israel are still waiting for that Savior of Isaiah 53 and waiting for the Messiah to come. But God has been silent for 400 years. Puts into perspective when we're waiting for things and wondering why God isn't acting sooner. And God has been orchestrating his plan and putting pieces in place until it was just the right time. And he caused the lot to have Zechariah come in. And he comes in and this angel is standing before him. One other note that that I think is really significant here that, that speaks to Zechariah's character They've gone through all this with infertility and and shame and reproach. And what's he still doing? Serving. He is still in the temple doing his job. He, He is still following God and righteous before God. See, God often calls us in the middle of just ordinary faithfulness. Think about it. Think about Moses. When does God call him? With the burning bush. While he's tending sheep doing his job out in the wilderness. David, he's called also as a shepherd. Think of the disciples. They're just fishing with dad, doing what they're supposed to do. And Jesus walks up and says, come follow me. Gideon was just threshing wheat. And God says, you're my man. And he comes. In this case, Zechariah is serving God faithfully, obeying God. Didn't let difficulties keep him from serving. And God moved. So then we move on with the story, verse 13, and we get to the message, the third movement of this, the message. God is going to work in extraordinary ways through an impossible situation to announce the coming of the Savior. I know, big sentence. God is going to work in extraordinary ways through an impossible situation to announce the coming of the Savior. This is the next step in the rescue plan, in the salvation plan, in our certain salvation. This is God moving his plan forward. And so we see verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. (laughs) Too late. For your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So the angel speaks to him and begins to share the plan. He says, your prayer has been heard and and 
You, you can read all kinds of debate about what he's praying about. We don't know. Chances are it's the normal prayer of the priest as they give incense for the salvation of Israel. Some say, well, it's, it's praying for a son. Keep in mind that later it says they're too old to have children. That prayer has left the station. Now that's a, that's a fading hope. But what does God do in this? He answers both. He answers both. He says, I am going to save Israel. The time has come, but you're going to have a son, even though you think it's impossible. And he will be my prophet. And he'll pick up where Malachi left off. So he says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And what a moment in Zechariah's life. His prayer for Israel is answered. The prayer of the multitude outside the temple for the salvation of Israel is going to be answered. And he's going to get a son. A lot of times with names, we need to ask the question, what do they mean? And for those that went to Israel, we asked that all the time, didn't we? What does that name mean? The name John means the Lord has shown favor. Isn't that a perfect name? For God coming back onto the scene, not that he ever left, but in a visible way and saying, this is the next step. You may think it's impossible. You may think I've been silent, but God has shown favor on them, on Israel, and ultimately on the world. Verse 14, we see more about this son. And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. And you see the theme of joy. And God is doing something here. Celebrate. For he will be great before the Lord. And we get a description of him here. He'll be great before the Lord. Not necessarily before man. But as he obeys God and is out in the wilderness and and is calling people to repentance. Yeah, that may not be popular, but he'll be great with God. And he goes on to give some instructions. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And and so you get some instructions there. And some think that's a Nazarite vow because they couldn't drink wine or strong drink. and, And that's possible, although it doesn't include all the elements of it. But also priestly service. A priest before executing his duties wasn't allowed to have strong drink or alcohol. And so it it is a a reflection of someone that's set apart to serve God. He says he's not to have wine, strong drink. Instead, he's to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. We're going to hear that next week. We're going to see that come to fruition next week. And he goes on to say, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, speaking of the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And the angel is saying, he's coming to be a prophet that will announce the Messiah. He's going to get people ready for the Messiah. Now, now we have to understand all of these, especially in 16 and 17, these words were trigger words that they would have said, that's the Old Testament. That's Old Testament prophecy. This is God at work. In Malachi, some of the last words written in the, in the Old Testament, the last prophet probably, Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send you my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. And Malachi had had promised, next time you see God working, messenger is going to come first. And for us, oh, that's part of the story. For them, this is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And, and they, they knew it wasn't going to be a literal Elijah, although some probably thought it, it was. But God was, was, coming in this, was sending a messenger in the spirit of Elijah. And catch this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, just in case you're wondering how I know that he's quoting that. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destuc- destruction. And so here the, the, the angel is saying, It's happening. You've been waiting for this. Your son is going to be the prophet like Elijah. 
And he's going to come and he's going to call people to repent, to turn to God. He's going to call fathers to their children. And that speaks of a restoration of family ties, a restoration of relationships. He's going to call the people that are disobedient to be obedient. And we see that in the work of John the Baptist later. But this is introducing him. Zechariah, what do you think he's feeling at this point? Wow. Wow. This is amazing. We've been waiting 400 years, and now Elijah is coming back in my son. In fact, if you've done a Seder with us, the, the, the Jewish people will often leave an empty chair at Passover, right? For Elijah. They're waiting for this to happen. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come, but they know that there's a messenger that comes first. And Elijah, who called his people back to repentance from Baal, now comes as John the Baptist. John the Baptist in his spirit, in that same vein. And God's timing is perfect. And so we see a description of the, the boy that will be born, the message. God is going to work in extraordinary ways through impossible situations. Through infertility, through a couple that's too old to have kids, and he's going to move his plan along because then he gets the credit. And so at that point, we would expect Zechariah to be jumping around and celebrating and praising God and saying, this is amazing. And so we, we, we get to 18 and we get to see his response. And the response is that Zechariah responds in disbelief and doubt. What? And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? And, and what he's doing with that phrase, it, it's, it's literally saying, how do I know you're telling the truth? I need proof. I need a sign. And this was a, a standard way of asking for a sign and he says, how will I know this? I'm an old man. And, and the, the I is emphasized there. I'm old. Can't have kids. Hello? My wife is old. She's advanced in years. And at that moment, his response wasn't one of joy. It wasn't one of acceptance, but one of disbelief and doubt. And the angel answered him, and he uses the same emphatic eye. Oh, yeah? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. I would have been shaking a little bit at that point. But, but you can picture this, right? This good news comes and understand. Don't be too hard on Zechariah. Yes, he should have believed. He's been a student of the word. But understand, infertility is something he's dealt with his whole life. And, and when you struggle with infertility, one of the defense mechanisms is you start to, to mask hope and keep yourself from hoping. And so you put up defenses and you, you put up things that, that you never actually think it's going to happen because that just gets your hope up again and gets it crushed again. And so I totally understand where he's coming from. And he's like, Okay, I know you've said that, but, but I have to go tell my wife that she's going to have a baby? God, do you know how that conversation's going to go? Sarah laughed. I don't think my wife will. And so I'm not justifying it, but understand Luke is giving us pictures of people, real people. And Zechariah let natural inclinations and natural defenses and natural self-protection overrule trusting in God. And that's a key that we're going to see different in the next story that we need to understand. I'd probably ask for a sign too, but that's not trust. And God wanted Zechariah to trust. And so he goes on, and in verse 20, there's God's response to Zechariah's request. And, and, and the request was for a sign. And so God is going to give him a sign, but a sign that's a little bit of punishment, of discipline, of correction. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. You're questioning my action and saying, I'm still silent. 
you're now silent for the next nine months. And we know later in Luke that it probably meant that um, he was deaf as well. So he, he would live in silence, unable to speak, unable to hear. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You catch verse 20? You did not believe my words, which might be fulfilled in their time. What does it say? That will be fulfilled in their time. The heart of this matter is God is at work. His plan will happen. Trust it. One author wrote, you cannot contend with God and leave unchanged. And Zechariah contended with God and he was changed. But in God's grace, his discipline was temporary and God still enacted his plan. And so we get to the last part of this, this, the last movement of this story, the outcome. God works his salvation plan in 21 through 25. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. So the people are all outside and and doing the incense and and offering the prayer that went with it didn't take that long. But this time it did. And so they're wondering, do do we need to to get him out of there? Is he dead? What's going on? And he comes out and one of the traditions is the priest would come out and they they would state a blessing, an Aaronic blessing. And they would say, the Lord bless you out of number 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they've waited all this time. And Zechariah comes out and they're waiting to hear the blessing, which means, you know, God has accepted this. And Zechariah tries to speak. And can't. And they start to realize something happened in there. Something happened. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And I can just imagine trying to tell Elizabeth everything that happened without being able to speak. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And God worked his plan of salvation. He came home and God did what he said. And Elizabeth became pregnant. We don't quite know why she kept herself hidden for five five months. There's all kinds of theories about it. But, but I think looking at the text is the best thing to do. She, she's praising God for that. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And, and she, in this time, she's grateful to God. Her reaction is much different than Zechariah's. But what grace. Just, just think of God's plan of salvation right now. He didn't just send a Savior He sent a messenger to make sure people would hear the Savior, to make sure as many people would come to Him as possible. He's pursuing us, even when we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And He uses this in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. He works through their disappointment. He works through some of those troubling parts of their life to execute His plan. Bach wrote, Sometimes a roadblock is not a dead end, but a fresh turn in the road. Let me repeat that. Sometimes a roadblock is not a dead end, but a fresh turn in the road. See, if we believe God is sovereign and executing his plan, there are no such things as roadblocks. And that changes our attitude. That's the longer story of the two. But then we come to the announcement of of Jesus to Mary. And this is the one we say at Christmas. But really, Luke is intending these to be read together. Um, You'll see that in the structure. It's the same structure. But even right at the beginning, he starts by saying, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And that sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He's tying the two stories together. And he says, look, she's been 
pregnant five months. She, she's been praising God in seclusion. Now in the sixth month, God continues his story. And so we see the same thing, the, the same sequence, the setting. A godly young Mary is ready to start the next exciting phase of her life. She's ready to get married, but cannot have children yet because she's not married. Now that's not a problem. This is, she's at a good place in life and God's going to intervene even when she has perfect plans for herself. But still, she, she can't have children because she's not with a man. She's not married. And so we see in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We've now gone from the temple to some podunk town in the Galilee. Can anything good come from Nazareth, Nathaniel would later say. And, and he comes to this girl who's probably in a poor town, in a poor family, a humble girl, not who you would think. And the setting is, this girl Mary is, is a virgin. She hasn't been with a man. She's pure. She's faithful to God. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And we see the lineage there. And the virgin's name was Mary. And, and there's been all kinds of people that have said, well, it's really just talking about a young girl there, not really a virgin or whatever. But we're trying to deny the supernatural. These words can only mean someone that hasn't been with a man. And that's part of the miracle. That's part of what God's doing. That's part of the impossibility of this. That God has to get the credit. Mary's probably a young girl at this point. Culture and, and tradition was that a girl, a young girl, 12 to 14, when, they, when they'd reach puberty, the dad would arrange their marriage and they'd be betrothed for about a year. Betrothal was a little bit more than our engagement. They, they considered it binding. You had to divorce to end it. But you still didn't live together or come together until marriage. And so it was this in-between time. And that's where they're at. She's betrothed to Joseph. And there's a commitment there that can only be ended in divorce, but they haven't come together yet. Which speaks to their purity and their godliness. And in verse 28, the angel came to her and said, Greetings, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. What an what a introduction. And this doesn't mean that somehow she earned this place, but that God was bestowing His grace and favor on her. The Lord is with you. And her response, like Zechariah, was being troubled. But Zechariah was troubled at, at the stranger that's in the building. And her trouble... She was troubled by what he said. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What do you mean the Lord is with me? What do you mean favored one? And that she's just mulling this over and trying to figure this out. I'm just a poor girl from Nazareth. In verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So the setting is a young girl also being faithful in her life, pure, honorable. And God meets her in ordinary life and says, I'm going to use you because of who you are, because of who I am, rather, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to use you. And so we jump into it with the messenger in the same sequence in 26 through 30. And some of those same verses we read, in fact, all of those verses we, we read, we see the angel come on the scene and we see her humility. He's reassuring her from her fear. And in both of these cases, God, what's similar is God is using an angel to announce this. And it's a signpost that says, I am acting in history. This isn't an accident. I am executing my plan. And so when we read this, it should be like, God is, is working. Working decisively. This is not an accident. And then we get to the message in verse 31 through 33. God is going to work in extraordinary ways, doing the impossible to bring the Savior into flesh. And yes, it's worded a lot like it was with the John the Baptist narrative. Because there's parallelisms here. And he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And we see the naming in both of them by God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And we start a sequence here of five, six things that, that God is using to describe Jesus. 
But notice the differences between the stories here. What was said about John the Baptist in greatness? You'll be great before the Lord. With Jesus, it just says, he will be great. And there's an expansion here of John the Baptist. It's extraordinary. And and God is at work. But at each of the phases, it's like God in the story is stepping it up a notch, for lack of a better word. So Zechariah and Elizabeth having a child, that's amazing. They're old. But it's just amazing. Mary having a child without ever being with a man, that's a miracle. Do you see the difference? They're both God work, but God is showing that John the Baptist is the messenger, the forerunner, and, and look at what I'm doing with my son Jesus. He does the same thing in this description. John the Baptist will be great before God. Jesus will be great. And then he goes on. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And he's speaking to his divinity here. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David right there, Messiah. That Anyone reading that, any Jewish person reading that would be like, that's the Messiah. This is it. At least they should have. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Only God in the flesh could do that. Because any man dies. Can't reign forever. If God doesn't become man, he's not in the line of David and has no right to the throne. Reign over the house of Jacob forever. And he's setting up the manhood the humanity of Jesus, and he's setting up the divinity of Jesus here. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is a different kind of king. These things describe God alone. Jesus, the Messiah, is God in the flesh. We see the superiority of Jesus at every point in this parallel. And then we get to the response. And this is where the stories radically diverge, which is, I believe, John's or Luke's point as he wrote this. In verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, now I need to explain this verse a little bit because we read that and we're like, that's not that different from, from Zechariah, right? That sounds similar. But when you, when you look at how the questions are constructed, they're completely different questions. Zechariah was saying, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. Mary here is asking a different question. She's saying, I believe you're going to act this way. I just don't know how it's going to happen. Because there's this little item of a man that's in the way or not in the way. And, and so she believes, but she's asking for clarification. She's puzzled but in believing. So this is a believing question, very different from Zechariah. She knew what would happen. She didn't just know how. Zechariah was saying, I don't believe you that that will happen. And we know that not only from how the the question is constructed, but we know that from the response of God. One, he disciplines. The other, he graciously gives more information to. So she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I'm pure. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. A word that's used of the Spirit over the waters in creation, of the transfiguration when the glory of God came on Jesus. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit in both stories, but we see a completely different response. And we, we, we see a little bit more, and then we'll see a further response from Mary in 38. But the outcome, God will work his salvation plan. The angel answered, well, he, he explains that she will be overshadowed, and this will be of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to even give her more reassurance in 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Remember, she's been in seclusion, so Mary doesn't know this yet. She's also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And the the key verse, key two verses, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. In fact, the same phrase was said to Sarah and Abram. Is anything too hard for the Lord in Genesis 18, 14? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And, And he, 
Luke brings it up, actually the, the angel brings it up, nothing will be impossible with God. And, and look at Mary's response in 38 and compare with Zechariah. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Her response is, I submit to your will. I'm your servant, your handmaiden. A complete submission, a complete willingness to accept the impossible, even at great sacrifice. For her to accept the impossible here means disgrace and shame. Elizabeth's disgrace was removed. Mary's going to gain it because she comes up pregnant before she's married. And most people are going to jump to some different conclusions. But she says, that's okay. Your plan, your will, nothing else matters. She unreservedly embraces the purpose of God. Two stories, similar with different responses. So what do we take away from this? And I asked you to think of two questions at the beginning. How is God working? What is his plan? Does anything stop his plan? All that dealing with how he's working. And the second question I I wanted you to, to look for is, what should our response be? And that's really the takeaways today from these stories. The first is God is the God of the impossible. He is at work whether we see it or not. God is the God of the impossible. He is at work whether we see it or not. God is working his plan for his glory, even in seemingly impossible or insurmountable situations. Now, this is the theology, right? And and Luke has us in there because he wants us to see that God has orchestrated this from before pregnancy, from from all time. But in this case, the story starts here. Now, I, I word that God is working his plan for his glory on purpose because sometimes we hear God is the God of the impossible and we get all excited, right? I can get whatever I want then. God's the God of the impossible. I'm going to have a million dollars by next week. I'm going to have a new this. I'm going to have a new that. And my joke here is, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which doesn't mean I can do anything I want. It means he'll help us be content in all situations. But that doesn't mean I can go jump off the gym and say, God's got me. God's the God of the impossible. No, I'm probably going to go splat. Because I'm following my plan and my will. God is the God of the impossible with his plan and his will. He's not our genie. Does that make sense? And so our takeaway from this is God is executing his plan. It is good. It is right. We don't change God. God asks us to change and come in line with him. But it also is comforting because it means whatever I'm going through. And I know a lot of people in our congregation this week have gone through a lot. Each day I was getting a different phone call of of different crises. People in the hospital, accidents, job situations. And why this is comforting and so important to understand is the same God that was orchestrating things for Zechariah and Mary is the God that's orchestrating his plan now. He hasn't stopped executing his plan. And these stories should remind us, even when it seems like there's silence, even when it seems impossible, God is working his plan. So then the second part is really, how do I respond to that? How do I respond? Am I Zechariah and ask for a sign and don't believe it and question it? Or am I Mary and say, your will be done. I am your servant. And so the second point there is God is looking for a response of trust, patience, and servanthood to his plan. See, we can either respond in unbelief or doubt or a willing submission to his work in his time. And and this this gives us hope. It keeps us from losing heart when we, we haven't seen God work in a situation for many months or days or 400 years. Okay, you haven't seen for 400 years. 
but it keeps us from losing hope because we know God is executing His plan and I can trust Him patiently. It keeps us trusting Him even when I don't understand what's happening around me and it seems like the world's falling apart. But I know God is executing His plan. I can trust Him. His work is always right. His timing is always right. My response is not always right. Spurgeon wrote, speaking of unbelief, every other crime touches God's territory, but unbelief aims a blow at his divinity, impeaches his veracity, denies his goodness, blasphemes his attributes, maligns his character, Therefore, God of all things hates first and chiefly unbelief wherever it is. That's convicting. Because when I worry, when I get all stressed out about life, that's unbelief. That's saying, I don't believe God has a plan and he's executing his plan. Trust God at his word. Trust God to be true to His promises. In ordinary faithfulness, trust Him. Even when He asks us to sacrifice, trust Him. It's not about us, it's about His plan. Two stories that start the narrative, the birth narrative. But walk away today knowing that God is at work and knowing that we can trust him. And see what that does to your attitude this week. See what it does to your worry. See what it does to how stressed out you are. God is working his plan. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, what amazing actions you have taken to save us to rescue us, to dive into our life here, to this world, to empty yourself and become a man. Lord, thank you for that love, that sacrifice. Lord, I pray that today we would think of Zechariah, we'd think of Mary, both people used by you, but we'd think of their responses and not take the long way around. But submit and trust, Lord, that as, as things happen, even this week, that we don't understand, that would throw most people for a loop, that we would say, I can't wait to see how God uses this. I can't wait to see what he does. Because I know he's working. Lord, help us to be that kind of people that are willing servants of the King. In Jesus' name.